Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. A few years ago, a molecular biologist named Jonah, Jonas Friesen began studying how the human body works in regards to our cells and tissue um, and how they renew themselves. Um, you know how this works. If I get a paper cut, aside from screaming and crying, um, eventually, about two days later, that cut heals up, right? It, it, it heals up. Um, and that happens because my body slowly produces cells that all come back together and, and reconnect my skin. Body cells die every single day. A human can lose as many as 100 billion cells a day, which just blows my mind. Because I feel like I'm just looking at my body, I I just, in my small mind, I'm like, I shouldn't have more than 100 billion cells, but we have way more than that. Um, Dr. Friesen studied how this works over the long haul. We know how this works if we get a paper cut, but how does this work over several years? Um, He found that essentially the human body replaces all of its cells with new cells every 7 to 10 years. That that means that the body that I have right now is completely different than it was when it was 15. When when I was 15, I had all different cells than I do right now. And when I was 15, I had all different cells then than I did when I was, you know, 6 or 7. And the body I will have when I'm 40 years old will be completely different in cells than it is right now that we, we replace them, that they grow new. Our body's truly amazing, and it gives glory and praise to our Creator and how it does those things. Our spiritual life is very much the same way. Remember what Jesus said when he called Peter and Andrew to follow him? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls us to follow, and we do, As we follow, he makes us into something new. He transforms us. We're like a canvas, a blank canvas, and he is painting a masterpiece, and he's constantly adding more detail. We're like a block of marble, and he's slowly chipping away to make a statue. As we follow Jesus, our spiritual cells slowly replace themselves, and we become something completely different than we were years ago. And years from now, we're going to be something completely different than we are right now, spiritually speaking. This is called sanctification. That's a big theological term that that basically means we are transformed into something new. We've got three more weeks. We've been talking about salvation since March. We've been primarily up to now talking about what happens when we get saved. We're united with Christ. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're adopted into God's family. All of those various things. These three more weeks that we have, we're now talking about what happens next. What happens after you're saved in relation to our salvation. 
And so today we talk about sanctification. Let me define sanctification for you. Sanctification is a lifelong process where you wrestle with putting your old self to death and you pursue a deeper relationship with Christ, all the while he does a transforming work in you. Let me repeat that. Sanctification is a lifelong process where you wrestle with putting your old self to death and pursue a deeper relationship with Christ, all the while he does a transforming work within you. Let's look at how Paul describes that journey today, that struggle, we might call it. Philippians 3, I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When we get saved, our sins are completely forgiven. We talked about that last week on Easter Sunday. Your sins are completely forgiven, past, present, and future, never to be held against you again. God no longer holds you guilty for your sins. That's justification. But your sins are not taken away when you're saved. You still sin. You still sin. You will still wrestle with sin for the rest of your life. You will hate the sin within you. And you will do everything possible to defeat them, and it will be a long fight. Paul says it here. He, he counts, verse 7, he counts everything as loss. That's verse 8, actually. Counts everything as loss, as in all of his old life. All the good and all the bad of his old life is now, is now counted as loss compared to his life in Christ, something new that he's found when he came to faith. Before Christ... We are dead in our sins. We love our sin and we walk in them. Even those of us who were good people before we got saved, the scriptures define us as dead in our sins. That's the biggest obstacle for a lot of us here in the South, in the Bible Belt. Most of us weren't saved out of darkness and depravity. Most of us weren't saved out of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, most of us were saved off of the honor roll. Most of us were saved out of being a good old boy. Most of us were saved out of moral goodness. This can be one of the biggest hurdles in evangelism with people in the area that we live, sharing the gospel with, with people in the area we live. People don't think they need that serious, people don't think they need to be that serious about Christ because they're pretty good people. They, they don't think they need to do, they don't need Christ to do an overhaul in their life. They just need him as an accessory on their keychain, and that's a direct path to hell. They, can't, they, they think, I can't get into heaven on my own, so I'll take Jesus, but I can get through my life pretty well without Jesus, because I'm a good person. 
So they give money to charity, and they have a strong love for family, and they are members of a church, and they have manners, and they vote the right way. I hear it from people probably on a weekly basis as I talk to people in Tifton and throughout um, in this area. Um, Not this said directly, but I hear it in what people are saying. It's this attitude of, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than, there's plenty of people worse than me. I'm better off than, you know, all those people over there. Just understand, though, God's not comparing you to other people. He's comparing you to his own holiness, and you don't measure up. You don't measure up. Look at what Paul's leaving behind. Look at verses 2 through 6. We didn't read them, but we're going to now. Um, actually, we're going to start in verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. What's he saying? I'm the Jedi Master Yoda of Judaism. That's what he's saying. I am the top dog. If God has a list of top 10 people that are the best human beings on the planet, I'm on the list. That's what he's saying. And that is what he counts as loss. He counts it as loss. He's checked all the boxes. He is the best of the best, and he counts it as loss. Actually, it's more than that. It's more than that. Look at verse 8. What does he call it? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Rubbish. We don't use that word because we're not British. But what's the, what's the Greek word there that, that rubbish comes from? Well, it's the Greek word skubala. Skubala. You don't know what that is, but essentially skubala means dung, means refuse. So they cleaned it up in this translation, but it might as well read, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as sewage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He counts all that stuff that he is good. He's, you know, of the nation of God. He's of the people of God. He's a priest of God. He's uh, righteous before God. He counts all of that as, as, might as well just be flushed down the toilet compared to knowing Christ. Paul counts all that goodness as a pile of excrement compared with the good works Christ can do in him. Is that the same for you? Are you so hungry for Christ to work in you that you don't even think about all the good things you might have to you might have put your hope in before? You'd rather know Christ than take pride in the fact that you're a good person on this earth. Sanctification, this this process of becoming more like Jesus, it involves first laying aside your old self, laying aside who you were before, even if that person was good. It's shedding the dead spiritual cells so that new ones can grow in their place. How does this happen? Well, it happens through daily repentance. It happens through daily repentance. It comes through daily repenting of your sins, daily going to war against the sins inside of you. Repentance is not simply feeling sorry for yourself. It's not simply asking God to forgive you. Those things are included in it, but repentance involves action. It involves choosing to battle and fight your sin, whether that sin is self-righteousness or lust. 
the best sins or the worst sins, the sins that people wouldn't look down on you that bad for or the ones they would. We daily go to war against those things, and very often we lose. Very often we fight that battle, and we, we lose for the day. There are sins that, that we can commit that um, they have a very clear path to cutting, um, cutting it off completely. You know, if you're cheating on your wife, uh, you, there's a clear path to cutting that off. Um, stop and confess to her and go to a counselor and, and, Lord, please save your marriage. That's the clear path. But a lot of sins aren't that clean cut. Many sins take years and years of wrestling through before you overcome them because they're internal. Most sins are not external things you can see. I can be struggling with 10 different things in my heart and you never even know it. You can be struggling with 10 different things in your heart and I never even know it. They're internal. They're things we struggle with in our heart. They may or may not have outward signs that, that come with those things, but they're internal. Sanctification is daily going to war against those struggles. And so as temptations come your way, you enter into battle with them. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes you give in to those temptations, what, be whatever they are. When that happens, you lean into the grace of Jesus and know that he will not cast you away despite your failure. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you overcome those temptations, and you rejoice in those victories. Not that you were strong enough to overcome, but that the Spirit empowered you to overcome and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Sanctification is an inward battle. It's not, an out, it's not about outward appearances. We can often confuse the two, can't we? We can think, I'm a really strong Christian because I'm at church every week, I read my Bible, I pray for sick people, and I give money. And those things are all good, please do all those things. But those are not sanctification. Those may aid in God's work of sanctification in you, but sanctification is an inside battle that works its way outward. That is, if you are fighting your sin, putting off your old self and putting on the new self, it will make your Bible reading stronger. It, your Bible reading is not the actual growth itself, it will make it stronger. It's something that goes on inside. It's not an outward battle that works its way in. It's an inward battle that works its way out. Your goal in the Christian life is that your heart would be changed so it changes you more and more on the outside. That God would remove your dead spiritual cells in your heart and replace them with new living ones. You may object that you can't change or you don't want to change. You like the way you are now. And it doesn't matter that you don't want to change. You change. You change. God is the only one who doesn't change. Just understand that your heart is like your yard. Your heart is like your yard. It won't remain looking that pretty forever. It won't. You can either stay on top of it, keep it looking nice, mow it, weed eat it, spray for weeds, landscape it. Or you can neglect it, and pretty soon you've got a wilderness in your yard that's 10 feet tall and all kinds of creatures living in it. Which one is going to be the case in your heart? Because you will change naturally. It will only be through you seeking to count as lost your former life so Christ can work through you that you will change for the better, that the yard of your heart will remain looking pretty. So that's the negative part of sanctification, verses 7 and 8. Now for verses 9 through 11, the positive part of sanctification. Um, you, 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 we previously shedded the dead cells of our heart, but what replaces them? What replaces those, that former life? 
Well, it's right there in verse 9. Actually, it's verse 10. I'm sorry. It's knowing Christ, knowing him. Knowledge of Christ replaces those things, and it works itself out in, in character and in action and in all the things that we do. Remember, I've told you before, there, there's two Spanish words for, that, that you can use to say, I know someone. Saber, conocer. Some of you didn't take Spanish in school because you didn't have to back then, but, but you, you learned two words. Saber, conocer. Saber means to know about something. Conocer means to know someone, right? I, I, Saber, I know about Charles Spurgeon. I've read a lot of his books. I've never met him. I've never met him, so I saw bear him. Conocer is to know someone relationally. I know my wife. I know things about her, but I also know her in friendship. Which one of those describes your relationship with Jesus? You know about him, or you know him in friendship? You pursue knowing Christ in the conocer kind of way, the relational kind of way. You don't just seek more head knowledge of him, though you don't neglect that. You need to know more in your head about Christ. You don't neglect knowing about him. You need to continually grow in your knowledge of him, but in such a way that you grow to know him better personally. Notice how Paul puts it. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 again. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know him through faith. He wants to know Christ through faith, but in such a way that he actually gets to identify with Christ. He gets to identify with his sufferings, with his death, and ultimately with his resurrection. That, that goes back to what we talked about when we said we're united with Christ when we're saved. How does this happen? How do we grow in Christ in faith where we begin to identify with him? Well, Scripture prescribes a three-pronged set of relationships that you need to have in your life to grow in knowing Christ. The first is your personal walk with Christ. You need a personal walk with Christ, a one-to-one -one relationship with him. That is available to you. That is not just available to me, the pastor. That is not just available to missionaries. That's not just available to campus ministers and church planters. It's available to you, people who aren't in professional ministry. It's the wonderful truth of the Bible that it's not just the superstars, which I don't see myself as a superstar, but it's not just the people that are up on stage that have a relationship with Christ. You, a normal person, can have access to a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ, and you need that. You need to daily spend time in his word, his actual word, not a book written by man based on his word. Those are good, but you need them in addition to his actual word. You need to open your Bible, and you need to read it, and you need to think about what you read. You need daily time in prayer. Not where you're reciting spiritual babble, not where you're going over a laundry list of, of, of wishes that you want, no, where you're talking to God like you would talk to a friend you're having lunch with. And you need other spiritual disciplines. You need to do fasting. You need to sing. You need to journal. You need to um, have silence. You need to have some moments where you don't have any noise coming into your ears. You're just listening. You need the spiritual discipline of learning. You need all of those things. In addition to that, you need a close-knit group of fellow believers to walk beside you. That's not church. We'll get to church in a minute. That's the third relationship. You need a close-knit group of of fellow believers to walk beside you, to be your friend, 
This isn't just friends you have who just happen to be Christians, but you never talk about spiritual things. No, people who are going to hold you accountable to the faith that you profess. People who are going to speak into your life and help you when you're not walking with Christ. Who are going to call you to repent of sins because they love you. People who are going to be there when you're suffering and sharing your suffering with you. People who are going to challenge you to grow. People who aren't scared to be open, that you're not scared to be open and real with. Not put on some kind of front around them thinking, to make them think you have it all together. That you're willing to um, let your hair down around and let them know what's going on in your life. People you'd trust to watch over your children if you got hit by a bus tomorrow. You need those kinds of people in your life. Do you have those people in your life? If you don't, you need to prayerfully find them. And finally, so you need the one-on-one relationship with Jesus. You need a close-knit group of believers that are your friends. And you need a congregation. You need what we're doing right now. You need this. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need the gathered church. You need this, what we're doing right now. You need to be here in this room right now. It's not enough that you just show up and serve in various places at our church, but don't come here. It's not enough that you just have friends that go to this church, that y'all meet up for lunch. No, you need to be here. You need to sit under the preaching of the word. You need to hear other people around you singing. You need to pray corporately with the church. God commands you to not neglect this. Something different happens when you hear the word preached in a group of people like this than when you uh, read your Bible at home or when you listen to a sermon at home. So I was at that conference this week, an incredible conference. Some of my favorite preachers preached. Um, some people preached that I had never heard of before, but um, something different happened when I'm sitting there among 10,000 people listening to these people preach, where um, sermons that, that I might have found kind of boring on certain parts moved me. So I had to leave the conference early. Um, in order to fly from land out all the, you know, there's only those two flights a day. So in order to be able to get home Thursday night, I had to leave the conference early. I didn't get to hear the two final sermons. So Friday when I was home, I turned on one of the sermons on the TV to listen to it. And I got about halfway through it, and I'm like, I don't even know what he's saying right now because I haven't been paying attention. Because I'm not there. I'm not there. Something was different about being among a congregation of people listening to the preaching of the word than listening to it on my couch. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You have greater strength to follow Jesus when there's a cloud of witnesses around you both living and dead. I hear pastors sometimes, um, specifically those that are really into church growth, um, I hear some of them complain about churches that have cemeteries. I've heard pastors say, if your church has a cemetery, that just means you're a dying church. Well, that's a stupid saying. It's just dumb. It's absolutely stupid. So I have a, where I have my desk in the office, um, I, I can turn and look out the window. And I have it like, you know, catty corner with the window, and I can look out the window. You know what's, what's so awesome for me is that where my desk is placed, I can turn and look, and my window is right in line with Evelyn Greer's tombstone. 
Um, I miss that woman like crazy. I used to go see her all the time. Um, she passed away right before COVID hit. Um, she got out of here just in time um, to be with Jesus. Um, so I can turn and look out my window and see her tombstone sitting right there. I can't tell you how many times I have been discouraged sitting in my office just, just wanting to not quit being a pastor, but just really down in the dumps. And I've looked out the window, and there's her tombstone, and it's like she's sitting there saying, keep going, keep going. Don't throw in the towel, keep going. You don't get that if you do the Christian life alone. And, you, and frankly, to those stupid pastors, you don't get that if you don't have tombstones outside your church. These are the three things you need. You need a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. You need close-knit friends who are going to challenge you and, and push you forward. And you need a congregation to be a part of regularly. You must pursue deeper knowledge of Christ. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is not just where we go when we die. We enter into it when we, were, when we get saved. It is defined as knowing God and knowing Jesus. We know him now. We will know him perfectly after death. Sanctification is putting off the old and putting on the new. It's shedding the dead cells of what you used to be and putting on new cells to replace them. So maybe you say, all right, I think I understand. So essentially, if I go home this week and battle the temptations that come my way and read my Bible really good, it will revolutionize my spiritual life by next Sunday. Probably not. Probably not. Look how Paul puts it in verses 12 through 14. I haven't attained this already. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, who, when he writes Philippians, is near the end of his life, so he's done all the stuff that we read about in the book of Acts. He says, I'm not there yet. I haven't got there yet. And it, it's, he kind of describes it like he's running a race, like he's you know, near the end of the race and he's wanting to give up, but he's just keeping running and he's almost to the finish line and he's just straining forward to get there as fast as he can. Sanctification's not quick. Growing in Christ-likeness is not quick. Our world is quick. And because of technology, and it's made things so quick and easy, we can be tempted to think that's how everything should be. You know, we're used to cooking things in the microwave. I can get food out of the freezer, put it in the microwave, push, you know, one little button, pizza or entree or whatever. Three minutes later, I got a steaming dinner right there in front of me. We're used to high-speed internet. Well, we're not in Chula, but we're used to high-speed internet. We're used to being able to look up a question any moment and have an answer immediately. If I'm puzzled by something, I can pull out this little glowing rectangle, and I can pull up the internet and type it in, hit enter, and wow, there's my answer, that quick. Never have to wait for an answer ever again. But nothing in life that matters is quick. There's no quick fix for what truly matters. If someone's offering you a quick solution to anything important, it's probably a gimmick, a pyramid scheme, or a cult. Losing weight is not quick. If someone loses 15 pounds in two weeks, they're sick. They're not healthy. That's, it's not healthy to lose two, 15 pounds in two weeks if you're, if you're having a healthy lifestyle. If you want to lose 30 pounds, 
It's probably going to take several months of you faithfully sticking with a diet and with exercise. That's why so many people fail at it. It takes patience and steadfastness. Saving money isn't quick. It takes putting $100 in your savings account every month for 50 years, and you finally have a whopping amount of money saved in your bank. Getting an education isn't quick. It's not something you can Google. You've got to spend years after years studying in the classroom to get that education. Building and maintaining a happy marriage isn't quick. It takes a lot of small things throughout the week and throughout the months and throughout the years. These things take a lot of time. And spiritual growth takes a lot of time. You set out on a journey to follow Jesus, and you leave behind the old self, and he's going to slowly work in you as you keep on following him. You keep going. You don't throw in the towel. The Christian life has been described as a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience going that way, going toward where Jesus is. It's setting out on a journey with Christ and not giving up. It's often two steps forward and one step back. Often the Christian life is going to feel like that, is that I made two steps of progress and then I regressed one step. I made two more steps of progress and I regressed one step. It's so often going to feel like that. You make progress and you fall back, but you keep getting up and going. The fact is, as it pertains to sin struggles, you're probably going to struggle with about three or four major sin struggles your entire life at the same time. And at certain points, you're going to overcome some of them, and then new ones are going to pop up. And you're going to keep wrestling with those things for years and years. And some of them you're going to overcome, and new ones are going to pop up that you never saw coming. Um, what, they may change over time, but you will have those struggles. When I was first saved, I struggled majorly with self-righteousness, thinking I was the greatest Christian on, on earth. And everyone in my life helped me with that. They, they told me I was the greatest Christian on earth. Not literally like that, but um, I would look down on others because of that. I would think, man, they need to be like me. I don't think that's a sin I struggle with anymore. My, my wife will probably tell me if I'm wrong on that, but I don't think that's a sin I struggle with anymore. But it took years to overcome that. Today, I struggle weekly, sometimes daily, with worry and anger. Just popped up out of nowhere one day. And I wrestle with that on a daily basis. It takes a daily battle of fighting those sins when they pop up, and I don't always win. Sometimes I let them overtake me, and I get an entirely bad demeanor, and it takes me hours to get out of it. It takes me hours to wade through that to get to a place of joy. I fight it daily. And hopefully, in about 10 years, that'll no longer be a struggle for me. But then something else will have popped up. This is what the Christian life is like. This is the life of sanctification. The big question you should ask yourself, is this your life? Do you pursue sanctification? Do you wage war against your sin? Do you pursue growing in your relationship with Christ? If you don't, why not? Are you really saved? Have you truly received Christ? If you haven't, I'd love to talk with you about that today. If you have, how about you start today seeking to grow in sanctification, seeking to walk that walk with Jesus? If you're walking that road of sanctification, let me encourage you to keep going. I get Evelyn Greer from her grave to be able to encourage me to keep going. Let me encourage you, keep going. You're going to have days of great victory, where by the power of the Spirit you squash temptation in the dirt 
And you're also going to have days of great defeat where you feel like there's no way God could still love you because you gave into that sin again. God still loves you. He still loves you. If you belong to Jesus through faith, he will never cast you off, ever. That sin you fell in again, it's already forgiven. Look at how he puts it, 13 and 14. I, uh, I haven't made it yet, but I'm going to keep straining forward. I'm going to keep going. Don't give up. Sanctification happens in your life by pursuing Christ and him doing a transforming work in you. This is his will for your life. So don't give up. Keep going. Let me close with Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Press on, don't throw in the towel, for there is great reward of Christ himself at the end of your race. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, that you walk with us in these days. That, Lord, as we struggle, as we lose battles, as we win battles, you're there beside us the whole time, and you're constantly um, calling us to come on, to keep following, to not give up. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name you would help each of us do that. Lord, I pray for people here who are struggling, who maybe they, who maybe they lost a major battle yesterday and they feel terrible today. Lord, encourage them with your grace that you haven't casted them off and you want them to keep coming. Lord, maybe that failure was three months ago and they've never gotten back on the right track. May they come back on the right track and keep following. Lord, give us victory over our sins and help us become more and more like Jesus to shed those dead skin cells and, and, and gain new ones, new living ones that are filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be